You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on the show Spencer Hillegas. Spencer was is an active real estate investor with his company, Madison Investing. But before that, he spent 13 years building teams in the technology space. And most recently, he led the originations team at an online lending broker, LendingTree, which has originated over $4 billion in transactions or 500 deals a month in hard money lending. Now Spencer makes it easy for passive investors to get into large cash flowing real estate. Spencer has a lot to teach us about how to become a great passive investor. So I'll just stop there and welcome you to the show. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Really excited to be here. And uh, definitely the coolest name of any show that I've ever listened to or been a part of. So I appreciate that a lot. You know, Spencer, it's my dream that when we can get back together, that we're sitting together, having this interview, eating a bowl of ice cream. So we start off with the difficult question of, What's your favorite ice cream? As a guy that has been cutting sugar for the first time in my life for the last 60 days, this is a very bittersweet uh, (laughs) question for me, Matt. Probably going to have to be cookies and cream. Okay. Toppings or no toppings? I'll have to go no toppings on that one. Okay. Because the cookies are basically a topping, huh? You got the whole package. I mean, you got got the crunch, you got some texture in there. You know, if if, now, if it was something different, maybe strawberry as a close second ice cream, probably going to put some sprinkles on that. Okay. And do you, are you a waffle cone guy or do you just straight up bowl? I'd like to think that people, if offered the option for a waffle cone, most reasonable people would say yes to that. Absolutely. Especially if it's like a good one where you can smell it from the outside and you walk in and I don't know. I just, it's just, it's it's crunchy sugar. Like, why would you not want that? (laughs) Like it's, I, I just have waffle cones on my mind here recently for the past two weeks. So I'm ready to get one. Um, the only time we have, I get to have ice cream these days is if it's tied to some kind of re- reward for our kids and an accomplishment, like a reading goal right now for a summer, <laughs> I'm not even making that up. So it's a rare moment. And now I'm going to have to go fantasize about this. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What, what do you do today? Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate that. Um, so I, I live out here in Silicon Valley, uh, specifically in a place called Alameda. It's like a cool island city tucked right between Oakland, California, and San Francisco. So um, I am a full-time real estate investor. And now I, I get to wake up every day and just do something I'm very enthusiastic and passionate about, which is help folks in our uh, passive investing group uh, called Madison Investing, be able to choose wisely and responsibly and de-risk passive investments in commercial real estate deals with people that we have already ourselves invested with before. It's that type of stuff that I focus on these days, but it was certainly not always that way. Um, you know, I, I came from a the tech career prior to this, which you and I were chatting about before this. Now you have actually got started in real estate really early. Where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah. You know, very reluctantly, we'll say that my, my dad was a broker. Uh, he was a residential real estate broker in the Bay area, California for 30 years. Uh, and he, uh, was a top, I think top five uh, national broker out of all brokers for a while there. So it was a really interesting exposure to that. You know, that was a very narrow exposure because real estate has so many flavors, you know? And so my initial exposure was like, oh, this is what real estate means. You know, people go out, they list and they sell uh, properties, specifically homes. And so that was my first exposure, Matt. Uh, He was taking me out as early as the age of six to just hang out on properties, even like there's like a picture that um, I'll reference sometimes for folks when they're like, were you really exposed at six? And it's like a picture of me sitting in like a folding chair with him on a plot of land when he was selling just like a big piece of land. And so the, uh, not much of that sank in at that point, he, but I'd stayed in that business while he grew it and he was making me do 
open houses and and, and just do, you know, here, here and there, go for stuff, occasional property management stuff for him, you know, as gross as this sounds like helping clean out an old fridge that hadn't been touched in, in, in maybe a year with old food and that, you know, really glamorous real estate asset yeah. stuff. So that was my first exposure. Um, and, and ultimately it uh, didn't leave me excited to do more of that, which is why you know, I didn't feel proud telling a lot of my friends when I, whether it was in high school or even closer to college, like, yeah, I grew up in a real estate family. Probably one of the reasons I ended up in a tech tech career for 13 years. Yeah. You went to like the least tech field possible, uh, went from the least tech field possible to technology. Um, yeah. so you're going into these, uh, startup companies and technology, uh, industries. When did you start to decide to like grow your, uh, income streams outside of technology, like into real estate and things like that? You know, that is a really interesting question when I reflect back on the journey, because I am a slow learner, apparently, man. I, despite the fact growing up in a real estate household, despite the fact that I had exposure to these types of deals, um, on the residential side, I didn't really get into it until um, maybe nine nine years um, into my my thirteen year career. And so, I mean, if you don't count uh, the purchase of our own home, uh, which is like its own separate podcast, debating people about whether a home purchase is an investment or not, which gets people a little riled up right now. So, I don't consider that an investment, by the way. That said, I went through uh, four software companies, starting with big company, went down progressively smaller which by the way, was it a deliberate choice? I'm the kind of guy that was like seeking out okay with lower cash comp even just to go take hardcore learning with earlier stage companies and maybe bank on getting some more meaningful equity along the way. It's kind of like the unwritten Silicon Valley wealth plan, by the way, for a lot of folks. Like the, I was dumping money into 401k. I was in, you know, index fund investing. I was doing that stuff on the side, but really just looking more so at like, hey, am I getting a higher salary? And so that was the playbook I was running, Matt. Ultimately, it culminated in a, in a moment that was very distinct for me where I was working at a startup that is still considered pretty hot. Um, I think expected to have a good exit and uh, knock on wood. And all that said, I was working 80 to hundred hours a week. And I had my first of our two boys uh, as an infant son, hadn't seen him in, there was a point where I, I hadn't seen him in person in like a week or something like that. And it, it was, I kind of had a, like a light bulb or a fuse lit, whatever analogy you want to use moment. And it was like, well, something's got to give, like, I don't know what the exit strategy is for this. I, I could keep on, you know, building teams, leading teams. Cause I had done, you know, originally AE work and, you know, actual selling quota carrying work. And then later got into operations management, sales management and leadership and all this stuff. And, and, and that's where it got to the point where I was like, something's got to change here. I can't do this for the next 20, 30 years this way. And I don't see the, the net worth. I don't see our net worth going up. I see maybe some potential for equity exit on these companies and stuff. But, the, but that was the first moment um, was realizing like this family that we're building I don't have enough time with them. And what happens if I get hit by a bus? You know, um, J Jennifer, who's also the co-founder and COO of our company, she has her own impressive career that she walked away from as well to go run her own company. But I did just want to mention, Matt, that like, this is brief, but I'll harken back to that early days when I was in the real estate company with my dad. Um, we had a really healthy run. My dad had a really thriving business. We got hit with a series of pretty tragic and devastating uh things over a course of a decade that like lost my brother to cancer, um, parents got divorced and like just a series of dominoes that fell a long time ago. We'd have to go way into that for TMI, but I'll just say that all that said, it was very clear at that time that our family had one income stream. Uh, it was from broker income, broker income, you know, using the Robert Kiyosaki language from rich dad, poor dad, because it's referenceable for some folks out there. You know, you got pipelines of income you can have like an income stream or the bucket. And the one-time bucket 
is kind of the equivalent is like an analogy for the, you know, for the active income. If you work a W2 job, you stop working that W2 job, you don't have any more income coming in. Same thing as a broker. So my dad, our lifestyle downsized uh, significantly when my dad's business imploded at, you know, because of a lot of these uh, domino effect events. And I took away a lot of deep learnings from that. You know, it wasn't necessarily conscious at the time, but it was like, it stuck with me for years. And as a dad of, of two kids now and a, you know, uh, a, a guy who has a family of his own and a business of his own, it really sunk into me. Like, how do I go and de-risk this volatility uh, for a household? Because who knows, you know, you, none of us really know um, if that were to happen, but I want to make sure that we're ready and we have a moat, like some, some kind of financial moat around the family. Um, and, and that's kind of when we started to go and look at other ways to build cash flow. Like, like how, how do we generate these other income streams? Yeah, I want to talk about that for a little bit on the technology front because I, I'm in technology as well. And I, I know a lot of folks that are banking on RSUs at companies that have high unicorn valuations that on paper look very, very good, but might not make revenue, might not make income at the, at the point, which is great if you can exit those. But nine times out of 10, they're not exiting. So yeah. we, we get drawn in, I think, in the technology space of seeing the people that were early in Facebook, the people that were early in Google, the leaders in Apple and Amazon and all these different companies. And then you forget that there are hundreds and hundreds of companies where people started, took very little income, took very little cash uh, per percentage monthly, but they just banked it all on RSUs. And you can get extraordinarily wealthy that way. And you can also spend a decade working 100 years, not seeing your kids for a week or whatever, and not make any money. It's interesting that you were able to kind of make that shift or see that before anything drastic happened there. So when you went out to go and start your investing journey into real estate, where, where was that then? Yeah, you know, I think, and by the way, completely agree with your commentary. You know, when we use the, the lottery analogy, just to briefly comment on this, like the lottery analogy is absolutely the right one to use when it comes to, to assuming your equity will become what you think it will become. If you accepted an offer at an early stage tech company and it had a dollar amount attached to your equity offer, it is currently worth zero. And so that is an important thing for some folks to swallow. I'm not trying to break hearts out there. That is something I wish I had heard earlier. First two summers of internships that I did back in high school, I got paid exclusively in stock that is now worth toilet paper. Yep, so yep. that's the stuff people need to know. I want to touch on that real quick because I've known hundreds of people that have gone to very small companies and have said the exact same thing. Like, no, I'm getting all these RSUs that are based off of this. I know one person who has cashed out very, very heavily, by the way. He's a CMO of a large company that just went public for a $25 billion valuation. Like he, he played the game right. He won. But he's the one out of all the hundreds of people that I've known that have taken that risk. So Right. We, we could probably go further into it. It's just so tempting because it's such an exciting. Yeah. I, think, I think it's a helpful and relevant topic for so many people that I, I, I care about personally that are still banking on that now. So I apologize. What was the actual next question? Yeah, I'm going to make this analogy. It's like a minor league baseball player that's still playing in the minor leagues at 39. At a certain point, you've got to say, hey. I, I don't know if this is going to happen. Let me try to figure out my next move here. The question was really, so you had this moment where you've realized that you need to diversify your income streams. You decide that you want to get invested in the real estate. Like what is that first property or what did that look like? Yeah. So I had the benefit, as you mentioned earlier in the intro, which I appreciated, I ended up stumbling into uh, a company like the last W2 role that I had was going into lending home where it's a real estate lending company. 
And so I previously worked in fintech exclusively, meaning like worked at Intuit, very thankful for these companies, frankly, it was a wonderful experience, Intuit, then a bunch of Intuit competitors. Um, and so somehow got into a real estate lending company that does bridge loans, you know, basically fix and flip loans and for, for single family homes and small family and, and small properties. That was eye-opening. You know, I had to go in and basically earn you know, some respect from folks who had significant real estate experience that meant becoming like a licensed loan originator, you know, from scratch. And then just, just to go then help grow and manage other people and build systems around that, all that stuff. So what opened my eyes at that moment, Matt, was seeing the dollar amounts on the other sides of those transactions for the people that were actually the investors driving these things. And I looked at that and I was like, you know, I don't necessarily want to become a flipper. I think flipping is, is a distinct strategy and it's a great one if that fits your goals. Same thing with flipping. You could be wholesaling, you could be brokering. Those are all very active. Then you've got stuff that's a little bit more passive. And you know, we could probably talk about this in a moment. I know we talked offline about rentals. So where we landed was ultimately, hey, let's go. Like, I had my own career. Jennifer had her own career. So we had financial footing. And keep in mind for the audience out there, like I wasn't a new college grad. Like I already had at this point, like, like basically a decade of experience and we've been working hard, getting good salaries for a while. So we had a footing. We wanted to go buy a rental in the Bay Area. That's a pretty tall order. We spent 400, it was a $430,000 duplex that we found after an entire summer of searching for it, looking around every possible market, not in the immediate area, further out where you could actually, and that is that was more affordable, by the way. We got a loan on it. We didn't spend that much dollar amount wise, but we put a loan on it and cash flowed $200 a month, which is by far like not a home run, right? I mean, it basically has appreciated since then in this wild and hot market that we're looking at right now. So I'm thankful for that. But if I could go back and do it again, I probably would do that a little differently. But that was the first thing, you know, we, we found a property up in Vallejo, California, still got it now. And eventually we started looking elsewhere when we realized like, oh, you know what? The money from appreciation, just because the property goes up in value, just like a stock, it, go, it goes up in value. It's not doing anything to benefit lifestyle now. And so that, that, that was like the, the, the moment for us when it really changed. It was like, okay, retirement is pretty far off for us still. We'd like to think, we'd like to think again, knock on wood that our health is good. Um, and that, you know, we're able to make that nice long stretch for, for decades, but how do we change this game now? And, and how, how do we, how do we give ourselves just more options, more flexibility in life and, and all those things. But that was the first move that we made. Yeah. I think I've heard you talk about in the past, there are like deal States and then there are not deal States. And I would definitely say that California is not a deal state from a cash flow perspective. And one of the things that I tell people that are looking to get into real estate, I mean, I grew my, single family portfolio to 10 before I recognized, holy smokes, I'm going to have to do something different. Because ultimately, if you want to replace your income, or if you want to get to a point where you have a dollar figure in mind, take that dollar figure per month basis divided by about $200, which is the average cash flow of a single family unit. That's how many units you're going to have. And for some right. people that are accredited investors or have a lofty target goal that they want to get to, that is a lot of doors that you're going to have with a lot of management, with a lot of issues. So when you when you decided to make that shift, did you then get into passive investing and syndications or what, what was the next step? Yeah, you know, and I appreciate you sharing your journey on getting to 10 properties, which in and of itself, I know it's easy for us to sit here and get jaded about it and say like, oh man, that wasn't exactly what we wanted. It's still amazing in its own yeah. right. You know, if more people got to that point in this world, if they found the awareness, they, they had the light bulb moment, they went out and started buying property like that, 
Real estate isn't the answer, by the way, guys. I'm not myopic in that sense. I believe people should have a portfolio completely. It's not for everybody if you're not willing to educate yourself that too. We got to six properties, small ones. Um, and so we got to a the duplex. We also got to a yeah, about, I think, five turnkey properties that we acquired over time in the Midwest. I think and those were out in Kansas City. We did end up selling those earlier this year. Um, and they were cash flowing about 200 bucks a month per property too. And those cost only 50 to $60,000. So I, I'm not here to plug um, a specific strategy, but I am here just to say that like that strategy was appealing for us at the time because we were coming off the heels of the learning of buying the duplex. We went out and bought the, the turnkeys, had them for a few years and they cash flowed. But th- this is where I get into debates with folks that are the rental buy and hold single family or die crowd. I'm open to it still. Like we're, they're in our future, we will buy more rentals. Like, like this isn't some like uh, us and them thing. It's not binary, like everything else in life. Like it's not a you know black and white thing. There will come a time when it matches our goals and time availability. We didn't have a lot of time. We still don't now. We have young kids um, we, and we're, we're, it's a very busy life. And so rentals are semi-passive, full stop. Like, and even, and we had property managers on those things too. Well worth the 10%, by the way. When we buy properties in the future, we will absolutely pay that 10% again. And so I can't swing a hammer. I don't want to do utilities. It is not my core skill set. And so I applaud and respect people that can do those things. I have not built anything of merit with, uh, out of wood with my bare hands in my life. And so <laughs> it's just being a little self-deprecating about it. But the rental journey was, um, was, was good until we realized we still had to deal with issues. You know, we still had to, to field the phone call from a manager um, from every month. Um, about something coming up. So we did that. And then ultimately realized like, hey, cash flow was good, but still not passive enough. We, I, I started devouring content around just investing in general. I read 24 books in the course of a 12 month period, which was too much in hindsight, um, but it was helpful. Uh, I, I listened to over 400 podcasts. I became a, kind of obsessed. I do think that like, that's what turned me onto bigger properties and to these other strategies that are what I consider fully passive after the point of investment. And, and, and that is like syndications and funds and the stuff that we invest in with our own money now. And we help other people invest in as well. And so it's not necessarily for something that pe- I don't think people should jump into it. If they're brand new to uh, the working world and they don't have any financial footing, that is not what this other vehicle is for, by the way. Keep in mind, like we were a decade in, we had footing. So when I, every once in a while, when a personal friend reaches out and they're kind of early in their journey, many sales professionals as well, by the way, that I, I've either previously managed or worked with. And they're like, hey, we'd love to work with you guys on a deal. And I'm like, yeah, but let's talk about it. You know, I, I'm not necessarily sure it's the right fit for you at this time. So it, it just depends on what someone's looking for. But that was the journey for me was like single property, Bay Area local, because we were scared to go and turnkey far away, sight unseen, going to a deal state versus the money state of California. We then went out of state, acquired a series of turnkeys, realized it was too much time and better money, but too much time then went to bigger properties like apartment buildings and syndications and helping people invest in a piece of a larger facility and being a managing member in a lot of these deals that we're in right now um, and continue to, to, to find and curate and vet and help other people invest in. Yeah, you said two things I want to pull out. One, you, you started with real estate is not the strategy. And I, I talk about that a lot. Real estate is a strategy and a part of a strategy, but it's not the strategy. It's not the only strategy that will get there. And I'm pretty open that 30 to 40% of my net worth is still tied in the equity markets. It's just that I believe in cash flowing real estate is the most important vehicle in your portfolio for generational wealth more than anything. And the second thing you mentioned was around property management. 
Like I go back and forth with some people all the time around what's the value of a property manager. And look, if you're okay taking that call at 10 o'clock or you know how to coordinate resources or swing hammers and things like that, that's perfectly fine. Do it. But I will always build it into my numbers because one, I don't want another job. If I start scaling out my single family portfolio again, I don't want another job. And two, that's just not what gives me energy. It gives it gives me stress when one of my tenants texts me and says they need something, even if it's something small, just because that's another thing on my plate. I think you and I are very similar. We started growing out our single family and then moved more into the passive space. It's more important when you get into this passive space now that you've got to vet the operator because you are a limited partner in those deals, meaning you have no active role, you are trusting the operators. Yeah, I think you have a good framework coming from a technology background on how you look at operators and deals and things like that. Can you talk to us a little bit about kind of your framework on how you how you vet those? I think I cannot take credit for the genesis of this framework. I just think we have tailored it to our own passive investing needs. Like even before we built our passive investing group and company that's Madison Investing, like we started investing in these things ourselves. So that that was the genesis of this. I still have this thing in, in a spreadsheet, it's in, in, in Google Sheets, like three big tabs. You got to look at the sponsor, the market, and the deal. One, two, three. And I think just to demystify some of the terminology for folks, if they're still getting used to that first one of sponsor, because it is incredibly confusing, it's such a typical real estate thing to throw jargon in it like this to throw people off. The sponsor is a very fancy way of simply saying it's not someone that paid to be advertised at an event. It, it means in this case, they are the general partner or the manager or the asset manager of that deal. The people who are calling the boots on the ground, the ones making the decisions and executing the business plan on this deal that you're going to go purchase. And so typically the ones that we have focused on have been large apartment communities. You know, So we're talking 150 to 400 units and sometimes more than that. So you, you better have competent, experienced people who are the sponsor. You can also call them the operator, boots on the ground, all those other terms I just gave you. So that's number one. You got to look at them. As a limited partner, uh, that term that you use, Matt, is really helpful, I think, educationally for folks too, which is like an LP, very fancy way of saying, you're basically um, saying you're bringing your capital to the deal. You have limited liability. So like unlike the duplex that I currently own, if uh, we don't pave the driveway correctly and there's a huge crack and the tenant breaks a leg while they, they trip on the crack, they could probably sue us. Um, on, a, on a deal like this, you have limited liability. It's a passive investor. Of course, it depends on just making sure you read all the documentation on all these things. But like, that's the first thing. Sponsor, number one. And number two is the market. Just know where you're investing. Um, you know, understand really, is there job growth? Is there going to be assumed, there, will there be prosperity and thriving in that area? And you can't just look at it on a general state level. I think a lot of times national news and media can really confuse people. It certainly did confuse me uh, before I got deeper into the business because they make it sound like there's the real estate market. There is no such thing as the real estate market. <laughs> it does not exist. There are hundreds of individual markets, um, arguably thousands, depending on if you want to talk about markets or submarkets. There's no such thing as the real estate market, in my opinion. Um, so example, Texas. Texas is enormous. Um, and this is coming from a California. <laughs> and so like we, we've, we have focused in Dallas, Fort Worth. That in and of itself is enormous. So you got to click down, click down, click down, find the neighborhood that you appreciate, understand if there's job supply there, because the people living in these comfortable places that we, we prefer to go focus on and invest in and acquire, they are employed somewhere. Their employment checks pay the rent in these, in these facilities. That rent becomes you know, part of the net operating income that helps determine the price of the property, which ultimately can lead to a favorable sale at the end. 
and also pays the cash flow for the investors that are LPs in it. So sorry for the terminology overload for folks that are just hearing this for the first time. They're like, wow, that was a lot of terms in one breath. Third comment would just be uh, the deal. You know, we already talked about the sponsor and the market. And then I talked about the deal said another way. That's really just the business plan. It really just means you're going to go buy this, this property uh, and then do stuff to it probably. And then doing that stuff, usually renovations, usually like putting in more effective property management, um, interior, exterior renovations of sorts, depending on the, on the strategy. I just outlined one specific type of strategy that like that was a value add strategy. If you want to use the industry term, um, you run that play, you run that, that business plan, um, run by experts. And then at the end of it, you know, you, you hopefully have an excellent outcome. So like that, those are the three at a high level that I just wanted to run through briefly with for, for folks, Matt. And I think just to give evidence to the fact of how important the vetting is, I think like there's at least 70 sub questions underneath all those buckets combined um, that we go through when we're determining if a deal is going to be a good fit um, for our capital. And certainly uh, for the folks that are in our investing group who trust us to also provide, you know, to put excellent deals that we believe so much that we've invested in, in front of them. Um, so that, that, that's the three-part framework at a high level. Yeah, I like when you talk about just the real estate. The news says, oh, real estate is, but it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. And the more and more I'm involved in real estate, the more and more I'm shocked at how big it is. I mean, you've got syndicators who develop the property, syndicators who value add the property, syndicators who run the property, syndicators who buy the debt on the back end. I mean, there's just so many, and that's just in the multifamily space. Then you've got self-storage, you've got mobile home parks, you've got all these different things. And then the second I really want to highlight there is when you were talking about the business plan. So that is really, really critical. I think when you're looking at deals for first-time investors that are trying to get involved in passive uh, deals, they, they don't recognize that there are different skill sets on a business plan. Some folks are really, really good at leasing up just develop properties. And some teams are really, really good at doing the construction and the heavy lifting and the uplift of a business of a value add. It's not to say that one can't do the other. It is just a skill set and a muscle that you build over time. And you want to make sure that that team has run that play multiple times. Another thing I've heard you talk about on the operator side, though, is values. I'm a core believer in that as well. Could you talk a little bit about how you vet an operator's value system to make sure that it aligns with yours? Yeah, and I appreciate you clinging on that. You know, uh, this will be more familiar territory for you and I to talk about probably because of the fact we both have been in uh, some, some form of, of leadership capacity in the corporate world. Values focus has been something that's been part of my, my whole career. Um, and, and I think my mentors for that. I've always been an integrity driven guy, but I do think that they helped emphasize and hone why that's so important when applied in any type of partnership. Partnership can mean anything. It doesn't just mean like literal partners in an agreement. It means partnership with your investors. It means partnership with your boss. It means partnership with anything. So to that end, the way that I think of values with a partner that we might work with, I want to understand at its most basic level, like one of the definitions of integrity, like do they do what they say they're going to do? You know, the, the alignment of the say and the do. Behavioral interviewing, not a new concept. Uh, if people are not familiar with that, um, if you've interviewed in a corporate context, you might have even gone through a training or, or, or a few like this. I've been through probably maybe, maybe too many. Um, you know, you're basically asking someone to tell you about a time when, as opposed to saying, hey, what do you think about if, if I'm interviewing or like just getting to know a sponsor, instead of saying, hey, 
you know, do you think you should do the right thing for your tenants? It's kind of like, well, that's the easiest softball question of all time. They're going to say, yes, of course. More importantly, a question I would ask is like, can you walk me through your, your philosophy on tenant relations? You know, that question is absolutely throwing people for a loop and there's no like perfect answer to it. I would just like to understand, do they have one? (laughs) Have they thought about their tenants And, and, and like specifically within apartment buildings, of course, another one would be Really just, you know, a moment ago, you hit on like a, just a critical piece, Matt, which is like, has the sponsor done this before? And if they've done it before, very similar to if a person who gets hired at any role, any elevation in a company, if they've actually done something, they not only know how to speak to the what was done, they can speak to how it was done. And that distinction is so important because you will fish out stuff that is remarkably inaccurate and, and, and a very big disconnect between the say and the do the moment you go into, well, that's cool. You can describe what, but like, how would you actually, like, how did that actually happen? So you're not like sitting down like a hardcore interrogation with these folks. You're building like years long relationships with them close to almost akin to like a marriage. So you have to be thoughtful in the way that you do it. Don't go up and just like roll them like, like an interrogation, but that's a couple of the ways that I think about doing it is just making sure to tease out, do they do what they say they're going to do? And then continually drilling down and getting to know their past work, AKA in real estate, that's called your track record. And how have things gone? And if it hasn't gone well on something, that's okay. I mean, I want to understand, like, everyone fails. So, like, if someone has failed, like, we have a separate question specifically around this called failure response. And it's just, like, talks about, walk me through, like, the worst failure that you've ever had. And even if it's not real estate, like, why did it happen? What did you learn from it? You know, and, and so that, that, that's almost akin to the values question, in my opinion. Yeah, it's not that bad things happen. It's really how do you respond to bad things? And the values question for some folks out there might feel a little fluffy, but I, let me try to put my spin on it as well, because when when people want to scale into leadership in any kind of capacity, whether it's inside of their W-2, outside of their W-2, I always tell them it's very, very important that you have a leadership philosophy. And what that essentially means is when you're going to go into that role, you're going to get asked a bunch of questions. What would you do if this happened? What would you do if that happened? And the answer is, Spencer, I would do it however you would do it, because clearly you're the boss interviewing me. So you know all the answers and I'm just trying to answer your question the right way. But the real answer is, I have no idea. I've never been put in a situation where COVID happens and I've got tenants who have lost their job. And if I don't allow them to stay an extra 15 days, they're going to be put on the street or have to move back into an abuser's house or like all these different situations. It's not so much that you have been put in this situation. It's that you have a framework for how you view those situations. And I can't tell you how I'm going to react in that situation because quite frankly, I've never been put in that situation, whatever that situation is, but here's how I make decisions. And so mine for my leadership philosophy is teach, empower, and remove roadblocks. Is this a situation where I need to teach somebody? Is this a situation where I need to empower them? Is this a situation where I just straight up need to remove a roadblock so they can keep running as fast as they can? So I think when you're vetting these operators, it is good to ask, like, tell me about your bad situation and not only what happened, but how did you react to it and what did you learn from it and what's the framework for how you make decisions? Love it. Anything you would add to that or? It's so on point because, you know, I I look at even, these are some real time, but anonymous examples from the past year, you know, going through COVID, some of the partnerships that we have with folks went, I would argue, extraordinarily well. And and that doesn't necessarily mean it was easy. Um, Mm -hmm. That means like, 
you know, this is a global pandemic black swan event. And just because everything is going really rosy right now for the economy, last year was brutal. Last year was brutal. I mean, like, like for, for so many people and it still is right now. And so like lo- looking at these apartment buildings, for example, sanitation in the first three months when no one really knew how much or how little was required, you had to go in and basically like do the human equivalent of a bug bomb on these buildings. And like you had to go in and that was really hard to react that way and keep tenants calm. And, 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 and to be clear, I wasn't the one always doing that. I'm talking about our partners that we vetted up front and, and invested in prior. And we thought, you know, let's just see how this goes on that one particular property sitting out in X state or Y city. And they rose to the occasion and made some pretty significant changes. Like, like people, you know, in some cases, like relocating temporarily to the to, to closer to their buildings to make sure that they can manage them more hands-on. In another case, like, um, you know, partners who experience a break-in um, or even like more recently, I would say like the Texas freeze, like the big deep freeze that happened in Texas earlier in this year. And I'm sure everyone's got as much fishbowl memory as I have because we're hit with so much every day, but that did happen pretty recently. And that caused some mayhem for a lot of folks, but the reaction that one of our partners had, whether it was like fixing a two dozen broken pipes because the frozen pipes in the building that burst and they having to answer the question over and over for people, like how the heck is this going to impact the, the deal? Not knowing yet if insurance is going to cover it, which it did, but is that, it's that type of stuff, which um, really teases out how is this going to go um, moving forward? But the, the, we, there's no theoretical to do that. You know, that there was no scenario in an interview where you can say, hey, tell me about the time next year where we're actually going to go and uh, experience an awful deep freeze where a bunch of these poor Texans are going to lose their, their, their heating and their, their, their water and all this other stuff for a period of about a week, along with all the tenants. And so yeah. how are you going to react to that? You can't do that. So all you can do is have frameworks like the ones you walk through, Matt. It's a really, really good way to do it. Yeah. And I think you, I'm just going to pull on this thread just a little bit. Like when I invest in, in homes or my properties that I have today, or when I invest with operators, my most important thing is, are we providing a safe environment for tenants to live in where they can build a community amongst their residents? And that, that might not align with some investors out there or some operators that I don't care about all that. What I care about are the returns, right? Those are two different value sets. And when an issue like Texas happens, where a deep freeze happens and people are without power, people are without heat in 20 degree weather and anybody living without heat in the extreme cold can know that that's not a good environment. What are you going to do as the operator? And so, and, and like you said, no one could have predicted that. No one could have known that. But if your value system says, no, safe communities are what I care about building, then that's going to lead to a different decision than as an operator, I'm going to try to extract as much money and return out of this property as possible. Yeah, absolutely agree on that. I want to switch gears a little bit on you and talk about, you. I've heard you talk a little bit about how you view the market and um, maybe also not investing so much in multifamily now and moving a little bit more towards storage and just the different industry niches that are out there. Can you talk to us about maybe what you see out there and some of the industry niches and uh, what you're focused on right now at Madison Investing? Yeah, happy to. You know, And this is maybe the first comment on this question, Matt, because it's such a fun one. This is like one of the most fun topics to me is that um, as I have educated myself and gotten more experience in this space, along, I mean, everyone, you know, I'd like to think that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know, right? And being dogmatic about investing is a losing strategy. And I think that, for example, 2009, that was the year that was, I mean, some people would say the best year 
to buy real estate in modern history. And I missed it. So at the time, I thought I was making the best possible decisions for my wealth building. And I was living in Denver, Colorado, and I invested in zero real estate, one of the highest appreciation locations in the entire country between 2009 and the decade latter and the decade following. So all that to say, we were focused initially very heavily on multifamily. And frankly, we are right now as well. The market evolves and changes and ebbs and flows. And, and right now, uh, we are focused also on self-storage facilities. And I like those two asset classes in particular right now because, man, they're just the best kind of boring. And I know that won't get too many people invested exclusively in crypto very excited because this is not your, your, your play here, folks. Um, but I'll just say business plans that can actually be built around an investment is the difference between speculation and investing. I'm more interested in investing. Um, and so I, I'm okay with, uh, with how those perform because you can actually do something called underwrite them. Like you can actually make decisions based upon how they have been performing, the investments you'll be making into the property and the decisions and levers you're going to pull to improve their performance. So right now, uh, storage is even simpler uh, in many ways than multifamily. And, and that is one of the reasons I find it appealing is because it's just like the best kind of boring, you know, and key advantage being you also don't have tenants, um, you know, like, like in, tr in terms of living in the units, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, but there, there is a relationship there too, though. You know, like we live in a society where people more and more are finding the need to be mobile and, and store their stuff. So I won't go off on a tangent further from there, but I really like those two asset classes. Um, I also think that just keeping an eye out for more niche types of investments in like private, in different types of private equity. For example, like we recently invested in like a fund that was focused on ATMs, you know, and, and, and I was, as a guy, I used to work for companies that were in, in so many words, trying to effectively kill the use of cash. Um, I, I would say that, that, that was, a few years ago, that would have been a stretch for me, but hey, we went and did it. Um, and, and I'm very happy with that. And so I think uh, we are keeping an eye out for a couple other asset classes right now, but I firmly believe that regardless of where someone is right now on their education journey, I, I'm a subscriber to the belief that I only want to work and focus on stuff that I understand. Yeah. And that I really don't think you can go wrong with that. You know, I, I think like I, I, if I went out and suddenly focused on, um, gosh, I can't even think like I, I finally went out and bought some crypto again after I I'd sold my stuff in 2018, which I get crap for from plenty of people. Um, but yeah, we went back into that, but I feel like at least I understand the ones well enough that we went into, but that, that ethos is so key for so many people. Don't just jump into something as big as an asset class, because you think it has a cool name. Yeah, I'm going to bring you back on at some point to talk about the ATM space because that is so misunderstood for a lot of folks. And I get jazzed up thinking about that space because of all the economic factors around it, especially the super accelerated depreciation you'll get on the front end of that. So we'll have to bring you back on to talk about that. But I want to switch gears now and go back to go into our last uh, segment of the show, which is our five toppings round. Um, our first one is, what is your favorite book or what book have you read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? You know, th this book continually stays at that. It's been at the top of my list for a few years and it stays there because I've read it three times now. I keep going back to it. That is Essentialism uh, by Greg McEwen and uh, Killer Book. I mean, I, I think particularly in terms of just giving people quick comment, very brief. Uh, most of us struggle with prioritization. I think every person, if you're human, has the same 24 hours in a day. The difference between top performers and those that are not is their ability to say no way more. This book actually gives you literal verbiage on how to say no. And so I like that book. Yeah. I mean, as you scale, saying no to the wrong things is more important than saying yes to the right things, in my opinion, because exactly. saying no to the wrong things allows you to free up time to say yes to the right things. 
Um, our second one is, I believe the person you become in 10 years is directly correlated to things that you do every single day. What is something that you do every day? That's a fun question for right now in particular. 20, 2021, if I had to pick a really corny uh, theme for this year, uh, and I haven't really, I don't think, shared this publicly necessarily yet, but I would just say, been a big focus on not just wealth, but also uh, health. And I think that like, I, I have been a runner. I know we're going to nerd out on that a little bit. I think the, the contrarian comment to come, to come right on the heels of that is that running has not been enough for me anymore. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not a spring chicken in the tech world, at least, which sounds ridiculous as a guy at 38 years old, but I would just say that, uh, yeah, we have a personal trainer now, you know, and like, I've been doing that. And so every day of the week, basically I'm doing some version of either running or that health matters a lot. It matters a lot more than I used to give it credit, even while doing a lot of running, but running was not enough. So, yeah, well, most of our listeners know that I am an Ironman triathlete, so we'll have to uh, get you into triathlons after the show. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, you're going to have to get me in a pool first. You know, that'll, that'll be a battle. <laughs> you, you got the bay right there. Apparently that's super easy water to swim in. Oh God. Oh, <laughs> don't talk about the bay water, man. <laughs> um, our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh man, this is a tricky one. I mean, I would have to say it's the most helpful for me because I keep having to tell myself, I have to remind myself of it, but it matters so much, which is go slow to go fast. You know, it's, it's, it's often repeated in tech companies like a platitude. And I think advice can be useless or highly useful depending on how someone wants to apply it. For me personally, um, I think it's really helpful to hear that because we are surrounded by people who are, uh, hey man, no judgment if someone loves the hustle narrative, you know, no, no, no judgment if that's, if that's their playbook. Um, I think that so many people are in a rush to achieve uh, super wealth that they forget the fact that they're not trying to build, like they haven't defined wealth yet anyways. Like, like wealth to me is I get, to find, I get 30 minutes to play guitar and learn how to play guitar solo better and spend a couple hours hanging out with my children a day. You know, that, that is wealth to me. So like, I don't need to have, hundred million dollar net worth to do that. Um, so everyone has a different goal going slow to go fast means I deliberately take the time to define my goals, pause on them, execute the plan against them, take pause again, and then keep in running that, that playbook over time with the partnership of my, my, my life partner and business partner, Jennifer, you know, so it's, that's working for us. Um, and, and I think going slow is, is, is a hard thing to do in modern society. I journal every morning. And sometimes if I get very adventurous, I write a question for me to think about as I journal the night before, like in the journal. And the one I wrote down the other day is, am I going too fast? Because I think when, when you've worked at software companies too, if you push out bad code, like undoing that change is as hard as pushing it out the first time. So let's just wait Let's make sure it's right, then get forward. So, and that's where I think like your frameworks actually really help because you can really just start developing frameworks and saying, am I operating within these frameworks? Then I'm not going too fast. But when you start getting outside of those frameworks, now, you know, wait a minute, I might be going too fast here. Um, well, our, our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I, you know, it sounds corny, but I just got to say, uh, I think it's the, the partnership with my, my wife and business partner. Um, I think that, uh, you know, starting a business with your better half is something that a lot of people either are like, they're very hot, cold on it. And they're very, very polarized perspective on it. It's not necessarily jumping into it. It's not something that just comes easy. And that's why some people stay away from it. We have worked really hard to get to the stage that we're at partnership wise. And it's like a strategic advantage now. 
Um, it's like, like to the point where, um, you know, there's people I know who are like, oh, my, my wife or my girlfriend doesn't want to do anything related to what I do. Be like, ask me how that's going in 10 years. And so it just depends, you know, we're, we're going all in on like a fully integrated business life, you know, everything. And, uh, that, and I'm very proud of that because it, it wasn't easy up front. Like we had, we had to sit down and really take some tough weekends aligning. There was smiles and cries and tears and reconciliation all cycled into one weekend, but we came up with your side so incredibly strong. And so I, I think that that's uh, very proud of that. All right. I lied, Spencer. We're not going to have you talk about ATMs. That's what I want to talk about next. Cause I All think right. so many people do think, Oh, I'll jump into business with my life partner or my best friend or whatever. And sometimes that's not the right choice, but sometimes it can be a very huge strategic advantage because chances are Jennifer knows you very, very well and knows what you're probably thinking or where your blind spots are and can add value to you before you even recognize it and you to her as well. So uh, that's what we're going to actually have you come back and talk about. But before Anytime. we do, before we do, the last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone who dead or alive, who would it be and why? You know, I don't know why, but I, 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 I keep coming back to it. It'd be pretty cool to sit down with Winston Churchill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just think he's, uh, he's quite the character, but he's, uh, he's a real paradox of a human being at the same time inspiring so many people but also being kind of a pain in the butt for so many people at the same time it would be a it'd be a lively fun conversation i'd like to hear his perspective on things i love that answer one of my best friend's dog's name is churchill because they love winston churchill so much and do you think he would have the boozy ice cream so i got shipped ice cream the other day that has alcohol infused with it like i feel like that would be the most appropriate thing is booze infused ice cream with winston churchill I think that is the only choice of ice cream he would be willing to tolerate while accompanied with like a cigar or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No cookies and cream in here. Just insert a bunch of gin in it and we'll call it. Yeah. In. Just dump it. Yeah. yeah. That's there awesome. Well, Spencer, fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining. If, if our listeners wanted to reach out to you, where could we send them? Yeah. Um, you know, head over to uh, madisoninvesting.com. That's our website. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter. Um, you can also, uh, if you, once you sign up, you'll have an option to book time on my calendar. If you want to just, you know, talk about the market, I'm ha happy to do that with you. It's like, basically think of it as like a free consult or even just networking. Like they're really the most fun conversations I get to have. So um, yeah, please, please reach out. I also am pretty active on LinkedIn. If you want to come and follow me there, I, I post at least, you know, a few times a week these days and always happy to engage. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on. We'll have to have you back on soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. This was a fun conversation. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.